0: That's heritageradio.network.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I've been working on a new podcast here at Heritage Radio Network. Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, We've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. The entire first season is available now, and new episodes start later this week. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio is a nonprofit. We need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to make your gift. Today's theme, keeping it local and not because it's cool, When the COVID-19 pandemic first hit, it seemed like there might be food shortages. People were hoarding rice, beans, flour, and other staples, and the prices started going up. At one point, commodity eggs hit prices that were about the same as those at the farmer's market. When this happens, there are all sorts of pricing and supply issues that can come up. Can a restaurant that's just doing takeout triple their prices? Can they afford to make meals for first responders using the same ingredients? If your business plan accounts for higher food costs, rather than the often artificially low prices we see on a lot of foods, then you can keep operating. Chef Hunter Evans has been sourcing ethically and locally for a long time, and so when things started going haywire, he looked to his suppliers at Elvie's, his restaurant in Jackson, Mississippi, and realized he could keep going and adjust his model without a huge spike in costs, because he'd built his restaurant to pay a fair price for his supplies. Hunter and I are joined today by one of those suppliers. Dr. Cindy ayers Elliott started Footprint Farms in 2010 after a career in investment banking and foundation work. Today, the 68-acre urban farm in Jackson produces vegetables as well as livestock and hosts educational programs and agritourism. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, I am currently sitting in Rhode Island, and you're both in Jackson, Mississippi, so thanks to the, uh, I guess, magic of the internet, we get to have a conversation, although I wish we were all in the same place together. (laughs)
2: Right. Yeah, thank you.
1: Um, How are things today down there? I mean, for anybody listening to this in the future, hopefully uh, there's a vaccine for COVID-19 and it's a thing of the past, but all of us right now are dealing with this pandemic. How are things in Jackson?
3: Um, This is Cindy. Let me go first. I agree with Hunter. It is hot. And (laughs) we've been outside (laughs) early this morning. So it's good to be in the house. It is truly hot out. Even at five o'clock this morning, it was hot.
2: Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's. I guess, Dr. Ayers, you're really on the, uh, on the farm schedule, right? Work early in the morning, take a break in the heat of the day?
3: Well, uh, definite first part is right. I'm not sure about taking a break. <laughs> <Usually> <laughs> when, we, when I'm taking a break, I'm still inside. I'm inside on the farm out, either in a cooler or uh, looking at, uh, some paperwork, then I come in. So we try to sure. stay out as much as possible <laughs> yeah. until we have to go in because we don't want to come back out once we come in.
1: <laughs> right, of course, of yeah. course. <laughs> um, and uh, and Hunter, uh, so you're at your restaurant uh, called Elvie's and it's named after your grandmother, correct? Yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why you named the restaurant after her?
2: Yeah, so I think um, really... Food, to me, kind of like the most basic level is kind of about stories and like relationships to um, food and meals and farmers and whatnot. And I think that was kind of one of the early, you know, formative uh, memories that I have was going down to New Orleans and visiting my grandmother and just being exposed to all the food, um, you know, every event uh, funerals, birthdays, Mardi Gras, like there was always food to be had. And that's kind of where I guess like the, the community was, um, you know, grandmother and my mom always in the kitchen, peeling shrimp, you know, just fresh seafood. Um, and so that was just kind of, you know, I guess maybe what started me on this career that, you know, I, I didn't know at the time, but just the, uh, all those memories and just the love of like being around people and food. Um, so I really wanted to kind of capture that and we kind of took that idea and kind of ran with it like all the way down to the decor um, and just it's an old house and we wanted that that feeling, that kind of homey vibe of you come in and the kitchen is open, I can say hello, shake your hand or not anymore, you know, currently. Right, but, um, <laughs> right. You know, it's just very kind of open and like I want people to be known like I was known, you know, when I would walk into my grandmother's house. So um, that's really where kind of the inspiration came for LVs as a restaurant and, you know, all the way you know to the hospitality that we try to extend.
1: Right. And even I mean, you know, so one of the things you've spent a lot of time in your career as a chef sourcing uh, things locally and direct and trying to you know, uh, I guess, source things in a fair way and pay a fair price. Right. And one of the things mm-hmm. that happened when uh, this pandemic started is that people started hoarding food. There was a lot of fear that there were going to be shortages and food prices in, in many places went through the roof. Now, I think luckily we've come back from that a little bit, <laughs> yeah. but it was very yeah. interesting to me that when the price of a dozen commodity eggs approached what I pay at, say, the farmer's market, Um, You know, you get this kind of thing where people who had been sort of supporting farms and paying fair prices the way you were didn't necessarily have to change their business model in the same way as restaurants who were dealing with commodities whose prices were artificially low.
2: Yeah, totally. And I don't think I really understood that until I was talking to a restaurant owner next to Elvie's and he was kind of texting me looking for beef. You know, and I was like, yeah, I mean, my local farmer, like, always has beef, you know, whatever. Um, Because I guess I wasn't keeping up with the trends of factories shutting down and whatnot. And that's when I kind of was like, oh, wow, like, this the shortages and the factories are closing down is really having an impact. And, you know, their beef prices are doubling. And so the burger that they had that was $10, you know what are they going to do about that Well, i was still paying this uh the pr- the price i always have been for local beef and it actually was cheaper at that time um so that kind of really put things in perspective of how big this a pandemic kind of you know was and is and um just the benefit of like having local farmers you know on speed dial and just having a relationship with them
1: right and I mean, have you seen uh, any difficulty in getting any of the products that you used to source locally, or has the local farming uh, community and food system kind of, you know, uh, managed to be okay during all of this?
2: Um, it's really been, you know, the same. The only difference is some of our um, local beef; um, they also kind of got hit by like individual. Consumer, I guess, in kind of like the retail side of their butcher shop. And so they were kind of launching like the um, meat boxes, you know, get sent to your house and they just got flooded. So they kind of switched their whole model to just retail. Um, So, you know, I used to get ground beef in like a 10 pound bag. And then the next time I got it, it was in 10 individual one pound packs because that's what they were going through and selling. Um, I was still able to get my stuff. It just kind of was like, you know their retail kind of skyrocketed um produce been able to get um which is really great because you know a lot of the big distributors they kind of shut down a lot of their um uh, produce and stuff that had you know that was kind of uh i guess highly more perishable um they didn't want to them in warehouses with most of their you know restaurant clientele you know shutting down so um, And it's kind of interesting, like they don't, there is no, there is no conversation between me and a big distributor of like, Hey, this is what we're doing. like, they just kind of make the decision that's best for them. And they're like, tough luck. We're not doing that. But then I can call, you know, Dr. Ayers and somebody and ask them what they're growing. And we can, you know, we can talk about what's available and what, you know, will be available.
1: Right. Um. Dr. Ayers, uh, I've been looking at Footprint Farms, and it looks like an incredible place. I can't wait to come and visit it someday.
3: Thank you so much, and you're Um, welcome anytime. (laughs)
1: And I wanted to to ask you, I mean, obviously, the coronavirus has upended uh, everybody's lives to a a greater or lesser extent, depending on where you are. And I'm curious to know uh, how much it has changed the farm or if it has. I mean, the plants don't know that there's a pandemic, right? I mean, they still get planted and they still grow and you still have to take care of the livestock.
3: Well, thank you for asking. But for us, it's actually been busier because we're now even planning more than we normally would have. And during this time, especially for the last four months, um, we were serving a lot of families to begin with, um, with our CSA boxes and our partnerships that we're doing with um, prevention of diabetes programs throughout the state. So we were already on a fast track to putting a lot of food out, which means we had planted more food. Uh, During this time, we've uh, been creative Um, to open up the farm as a drive-up market that they can actually pre-order and drive in and get some of the foods um, that they normally would be buying of other places in grocery stores. So our business for our CSAs Mm -hmm. has truly doubled um, since this pandemic and for us us to be able to continue to service our uh, restaurants that was participating with us we're still able to do that and without breaking that chain at all. In fact, we've been bringing in more products because we've, we partnered with a lot of the other small farmers to help them stay in business as well. So we actually will work with them in buying what they have to let them know if they still grow it, uh, that we our market could support it. So this way we were able to, to keep that chain moving and to bring in more volume, because what was happening with a lot of our small farmers, a lot of the farmers markets or markets that they were selling to out, they no longer could. Um, So we were able to help them out that way as well.
1: Got it. And tell me a little bit more about Footprint Farms. So Footprint Farms is 68 acres and you grow vegetables as well as livestock on that farm, correct?
3: Absolutely, we are a urban farm. We're actually the largest urban farm in the state of Mississippi. We're located inside of the city of Jackson. Uh, We actually do have 68 acres here where we do do a lot of veggies. We do 10 high tunnels, which is what people will call the hoop houses that we're growing in, as well as about another 10 acres of open land. Uh, we're also growing some in water base. We're looking at and doing some projects right now in aeroponics. Uh, we're doing a lot of lettuce and things mm-hmm. that normally you couldn't grow this time of year. But we also, we do have animals. We have uh, goats. We're looking to put some more cows or put some cows on with us. But right now for this year, we were actually doing pasture management, getting ready for uh, for next year, to bring in more animals, so this has changed our 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 rule of thumb for this year to look at doing something a little differently because things have changed, so we have to change with it. But during this time, growing into the high tunnels, we were had planted a lot of um, different types of food in, as well as some um, food that we grow that the heat is needed to grow it. Um, we do a lot of uh, island food, like kalaloo which is a tropical that grows very well in this hot weather, as well as sorrel, uh, which is a natural vitamin C. So these are the other plants that we're looking at, that we are growing, and we always look to see what else we can bring that's healthy, that has protein and fiber, that can still grow during the summer when a lot of our other greens won't grow. It's too hot to grow the traditional mustard, turnips and collards and cabbages, so we look around the world to actually see what we can grow here to be not only competitive, but to bring something new to the palette that's healthy and it looks so much like our traditional greens that people still want to try it. And once they try it, they really fall in love with it. So they would be waiting till this time, summertime, say so is the collard ready or when is the soil ready? So that we've added something new to their palette that's healthy them and we get to talk to them about how they can prepare it because it's so different than our traditional grains it takes 10 to 15 minutes and it's ready um but again having that right. fiber yeah, makes a big difference for this time of year
1: absolutely so i mean hunter when you're looking to suppliers to get uh vegetables or meat um how much are you getting pitched on different greens and different types of vegetables that you haven't seen before? And how much do you bring those things into your menu? Well,
2: I'm glad Dr. Harris brought up the sorrel. Uh, Dr. Harris, will you add like 10 bunches of that to my order tomorrow? I mean, uh, <laughs> well,
3: the but, sorrel is still growing, but the collaloo is ready and we will have you okay, okay. as well as your figs. We actually harvest, uh, figs this morning. So, you have figs. Um, we awesome. with, with harvest some this morning. We'll be harvesting some tomorrow. Um, so you have figs as well.
2: <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, no, I'm gra- glad she brought up the calaloo because, kind of going back to you know the the story of Elvie's and to me that's really where I connect most with food is the stories and the people that grow it and where it came from. And so I've never had calaloo but. Uh, Dr. Harris and I had a conversation about it maybe a couple weeks ago and I was really interested Um, and so this is a cool opportunity for me and my staff and cooks to get it and play around with it kind of explore um, a different culture and what they used it for and how they cooked it and then also to ultimately you know, give it to people to eat and then kind of pass that story along and kind of expose them to um, a new thing. Um, and so that's really kind of the joy of cooking and what we do at Elvie's. Um, so, you know, anytime, you know, that's why I love working with farmers because they all have their own stories and inspiration. And so they kind of all have different things and it's fun to experience and eat those.
1: Yeah, and you and I and I, you know, I love the idea that you get to be the conduit to tell that story from the farm to the mm-hmm. plate to the to the customer. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about how that has changed. I mean, obviously, if someone is dining in at LV's or was dining in, say, back in January, there's a lot more opportunity um, for you both personally and through your staff to have a connection to that. To the, to that customer, right? I mean, now yeah. I think it'd be pretty hard for you to come out of the kitchen and and say hello to anybody or talk to them. Um, are there are there things that you've been able to add to the way that your staff interact to kind of uh, I guess get to some semblance of what it used to be like?
2: Yeah. So we actually kind of switched our whole concept or maybe added to the concept of Elvies uh, when we reopened the dining room and that that we added a like six course tasting menu and really the goal um, which I've kind of had this idea forever but I think I was overwhelmed when we opened Elvies and a little you know just scared to try it in Jackson but it's taken off and really the idea is I want to tell like the story of Mississippi and the cuisine of who was here, who has been here, what the food looked like, and we kind of do that through the six courses, um, and I'm really excited to get the Callaloo and add that on there, and then that's like a, an immediate talking point and in interaction and education that the server has, you know, before somebody's even tasted it, you know. When they drop the dish, they tell them it's, you know, there's Kowloon in here, and you know <laughs> they're I think immediately in, intrigued about oh what right. is that and just opens a lot of doors and a lot of great conversations.
3: Yeah, um, I agree. That's a great thing to to be able to engage with your customer. For us, we've been doing it a little differently with the um, the internet and with access to our clients and to our. You know, people are talking about it on our website, on our Facebook page or our Instagram, actually showing the food or some short clips and you know, looking at what we're growing um, today, something different and something new. So that's been good for us to be able to get the message out about something that we have uh, and they want to taste. And then we're also, and thanks to Hunter as well, we're looking at new recipes and new ways to actually prepare it um, and that's been coming We're encouraging people to make it and take a photo and send it to us uh, so we can post it on our site. And that's been interesting, the ways they've been looking at how they've made it theirs, taking it traditionally from our recipes and added their own touch, which I think is is so crucial and making it yours for your taste buds. Mm -hmm. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, Dr. Ayres, I wanted to ask a little bit about how you started Footprint Farms. So, you know, as I understand it, you kind of went from the boardroom to the field.
3: <laughs> well, I gave up the red bottom tie heels for work boots and I haven't looked back since. Um, <laughs> but then I can, um, I can tell you that um, there's so many cute boots out there too. Uh, Amanda can appreciate this, you know, they're in all colors and skins and they had belts and hats to match too. So, I've gone to a whole different tradition of what I wear. <laughs> but still not giving up that flair and and always farming with pearls. You know, I I believe and we have changed the the face of farmers and what farmers consist of and what they look like and how they grow, which is the point we wanted to get across in our branding. You know, we are not a traditional type farm anymore. Uh, we look at what we do and how we how we integrate things in differently. And that's exciting, but yes, um, I've been doing this now for 10 years. This is my 10th year, and I've, um, I've found so many different ways in what we can do and how we farm. Um, so we're looking at, even now, the training aspect. We were doing more training with small farmers and people who want to learn how to farm until COVID-19, so now we're looking to do that differently as well. Still reaching out to people now via Zoom, uh, via more podcasts that we're, we're talking to them about, still telling them ensuring them the different things that's available, what's out there, and giving information. One of the most powerful things we, we believe and have done is is continue to give information to the farmers and to people so they can have access, which is the biggest part of us is having access to healthy, affordable foods and the different programs that you can participate with to help yourself, to help your families eat healthier and to be able to uh, be more sustainable. So that's a part that's important for us here at Footprints. So we're still doing this and we're still working with a lot of young people. We have our 4 groups that we're still in communication with via Zoom, via you know, FaceTime. And encouraging them still to look at growing something in their backyards, in their coffee cans, um, just to continue this this task of growing and the importance of food. And I think I think this has really given an mm-hmm. eye opener, not only to our city to see how important the food chain is, but to our state overall. Because a lot of farmers, you know, we grow a lot of food, but not nearly as much as we could grow. Um, because they were catering so much to commodities, to big crops, versus the smaller right. farms or farmers for food, and this has truly brought more recognition and more attention to small farmers or to farmers in general that's growing vegetables. Because for us, we are the frontliners that's there, continuing to grow to be able to bring food to the tables, and that's something that farmers have always done and not got enough of recognition for enough credit for enough uh, access to the clientele and understanding the food chain. So we're very happy that we can continue to bring knowledge and information and TANF knowledge out there to help make a difference and bringing back some of the arts. You know, Hunter talked about his his grandparents' uh, kitchen, being able to be in there. Well, you know, we're looking at now canning, Uh, it's an art. And so, you know, younger people are getting into, that. Yeah. you know, how, yeah. do, how does how does this grow? How do you do this? So these are lost art that we're now bringing back and more people are very interested in that. Plus, that's a value added. And for us as a farmer, that's so important because if we're growing things and we hadn't sold in three days, even with proper post-harvest cooling, it's not gonna be as fresh or we say it's pretty. Um, so people will still yep. want to, to buy it, where if it's a blemish and it's not so pretty, uh, harder sort of like my new red bottom boots, not so pretty, um, that you still can get a lot of use out of them. <laughs> right? Cutting and slicing and dicing and even freezing, but we are pushing and encouraging canning and pickling and actually putting food up and away. But this other part of water-based, growing that we're doing. I'm doing a white paper right now. Um, I've been doing it for the last six months in research that I'll be publishing soon and getting to to people to start looking at using water uh, to actually grow your food. So you can grow inside of your house, you know, in your kitchen um, and put your grow lights on or put it outside on your patio or your stoop where you don't need anything but water and sunlight and the attention once a week to check the pH. So these are other ways that we're looking and encouraging new farmers or new gardeners or new people in general who just want to eat a little healthier to grow their own food. Partner, I can't wait to put one of these in a restaurant while your herbs are growing. A lot of your first herbs, your basil and some cilantro and yeah. parsley. You just take your scissors and just clip it. and Sign me up. Grow. <laughs> you're you're gonna be the first I bring uh, out that sounds amazing yeah
2: <laughs> okay so we're, we're always awesome. excited about
3: that and new ways of so doing things uh, again and um mm-hmm. we can do it in pearls and still be a great farmer
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I love that you are encouraging and helping people to grow things at home. I mean, obviously, there's been so many booms at home around food, with people getting obsessed with making their own bread, uh, with people getting mm-hmm. into gardening and planting gardens. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that the fact that if you know if anybody is listening who's anywhere near Jackson, it sounds like you have a great resource there in Footprint Farms.
2: Yeah. Thank
1: so you. So I wanted to find out. So so. Dr. Ayers, you've, you've now, you've had the farm for 10 years uh, and you know, you're know you doing a lot of really amazing things. If I was to speak to you 10 years from now, where would you like to see the farm? What would you like to see on the farm?
3: Well, what I would like to see, and we're laying the foundation for that to be built on, is to have more more of these scalable. What we're doing here is scalable You can actually scale it up, but you can also make it sustainable and it can move to any place and work. With this, I want other people to be able to see how you can do this, even if it's a one acre or if it's your backyard, that you can still make something happen. And we'd like to be a part of that, to have some more information out. Uh, We intend for this to be a a agro center We're doing more agro-tourism, letting um, people come in to see how the food is grown, but also for our youth to see how food is grown, where it comes from, and hopefully to be able to encourage them to look at agriculture as a way of life and a career for them, to let them know that there's so much opportunity out there in the world of agriculture. We believe in planting, we believe in planting seeds in the soil, but also seeds in the mines to open up to more possibilities, especially to inner city uh, youth, especially to um, to anyone, but especially of color to see that there has been a disconnect with the word agriculture and farming. They still think of it as past tense as slavery. Well, I want them to see the possibilities right. of being able to make a major difference in your community and make money as well. And to see the importance of health versus wealth, but wealth is important to have to carry on. So traditionally, I want this to be in the next 20 years, my grandchildren or some of the other children that I'm helping to rear by planting that seeds in their minds of everything they can do. So more than just planting seeds in the soil, planting seeds in the mines. Right now, we're spinning off some smaller companies. We're helping uh, young people and people to get into business that normally would not have gotten into business because they were afraid to leave their jobs. Well, right now, there are no jobs. And we're saying, as an entrepreneur, you can do something (laughs) to border or to still sell that people needs. And so we're looking at that as well as a maker's mark, I believe, where we'll be in the next five years to actually have a place for new artists and new entrepreneurs to be able to come in and do R&D to see what else can be done and how we put all that together to make something new. Um, And that's what Footprint Farm is all about, uh, a part of making a difference and an impact, that this footprint would be here for years to come.
1: That's incredibly exciting, and I can't wait to see it all come to fruition. I'm Ethan Frisch, co-host of Y Food and co-founder of Burlap and Barrel, a public benefit corporation working directly with smallholder spice farmers around the world to source unique, beautiful spices for professional chefs and home cooks. We set our partner farmers up to export their own crops for the first time, and they get access to a whole new market here in the U.S., and we get access to spices that other companies can't source. We're honored to work with restaurants including Eleven Madison Park, Blue Hill, and Chez Panisse, as well as thousands of home cooks across the country visit us at burlapandbarrel.com. Hunter, what about you? Where where do you see uh, yourself and Elvie's in the next, say, five to ten years?
2: Um, I mean, I've always thought, you know, when I started cooking that multiple restaurants was very exciting to me and I think that still is multiple concepts um but I think you know through kind of this pandemic when at the early you know phases of it when we were really unsure of what was going to happen and what it was going to look like um you know I think it's kind of brought other things into perspective that you know, yes, people need to eat and need to have access to food um, and they could do it at Elvi's, but like that it needs to be more available than it is. And um, so that was kind of one of the first things that we did was when we shut down, um, they closed the Jackson Public Schools. And, you know, all I could really think of is that there's a lot of kids that kind of rely on those meals and so we packed, you know, a thousand lunch sacks um, with an organization that I'm on the board of, So Reap Feed, and we got, you know, food to kids that needed it. And I think long term, I would love to kind of be in that arena of food accessibility um, and um, another interest is saving seeds and kind of finding and tracing the history of seeds and um, I kind of was that uh, I guess I, I kind of started a journey on that uh, one day I was at the farmer's market and saw the the Mississippi market bulletin it's kind of like a newspaper um, that's you know specific to uh, I think farmers and um, people that grow uh, animals and whatnot and you kind of you can trade and sell and buy and, you know, whatnot on there. And I was kind of like, man, I know some people are sitting on some really great like heirloom seeds that they've been passed down. So I started putting ads out just looking for heirloom seeds and one guy reached out and, you know, I just, it was just like started this whole kind of idea that I could like create a menu one day that is based off of, the seeds and the people that it came from. Um, and so like, for example, uh, the guy that called me, his name was Mr. Dickens and he gave me this okra that he received on his wedding day, like 45 years ago. And it's called a white velvet okra. And, you know, he gave me a bunch of seeds, gave me some other, some Geechee peas, which you can, I think, trace back to the slave trade. Um, some like English peas that his wife's mom was growing when she was a little girl. So they're over a hundred years old and I've collected those and I don't, I can't grow anything. So Dr. Harris, I'm looking forward to that uh, herb thing you were talking about, but I give those seeds to other farmers. They grow them and then I buy them back. And it's cool because I, I'm allowing them to grow stuff and kind of preserve the seed and also like supporting them by buying it back, and I've had this idea for a while. Maybe Dr. Ayers, we could tag team, but kind of this idea of like a seed bank, kind of like a library where you go in and there's all these seeds, and you take you know a couple of white oak, uh, white velvet ochre seeds, and then you grow them, and then kind of part of the process is you also preserve some, and then you can like re- replenish and I think it would be this really cool network of people kinda of trading and collecting and preserving like really beautiful heirloom seeds from Mississippi. Um so I don't know how that happens, but I would love to kind of create that kind of this like seed library, I guess, if you would call if you, you know, could call it that.
1: Super super exciting stuff. Um and it seems to me like they're very much could be a way to collaborate um, between the two of you, between Hunter and Elvie's and uh, Footprint Farms, relating to the the preserved foods as well. Um, It seems to me that the preserved Mm -hmm. foods, if there are foods that are blemished coming out of the fields that, uh, you know, or if too much food is grown in the fields, that stuff could be preserved and then hopefully used later um, for some of those uh, meals that you're talking about having produced.
2: Yeah, so... You know, I think like, uh, one of, you know, as Dr. is talking about, you know, teaching the younger kids, um, I just feel like that's there's a lot more engagement, you know, if she was like, this is a seed that's been around for 40 years, you know, and the like that would automatically like pique my interest of like, oh, well, then, you know, I really want to grow this and watch it grow and continue to watch it and tend to it, you know, where, um, you know that's just another maybe you know way to engage the next generation and preserve you know the the people that have been growing and because one of the reasons the guy gave me the seeds because he was like my sons are are not going to grow this stuff you know so they're either going to you know just die you know die out or just stay in my deep freezer forever so it was a cool way to kind of pass it on i guess and uh, for me to, you know, share that with other farmers.
3: I think I think that was something that we definitely want to do and can do. We do some of it now. In fact, Hunter, um, our Collulose seeds, um, we've actually this is our third year, fourth year of actually saving the seeds to re- replant. Um, our seeds initially came in through Jamaica, so we you know we started with four or five seeds and now we have you know, half acre of colony, um from saving our seeds as well as our sorrel. Our sorrel will be from seeds yeah. that we, um, uh, we've continued to save each year to, to replant again. So we're doing a lot of that. And there's other ones across the country that's been doing some of those. Those heirlooms are important uh, seeds to do it. And for us here in Mississippi, I'm mm-hmm. hoping that's something else that we can do and start. Other, some other parts I you know in Georgia do some of that um, but nothing's here. And I think that's a, another way of uh, yeah. getting yeah. it uh, exciting to people to tell the story because one of the stories we always like to tell about the Kalalu and the other things have come is that during the slave times when um, slaves were being taken from Africa, people were being taken turned to slaves from Africa, um, the ladies, the women, the mothers, uh, would actually braid seeds into our hair, into the hair. So a lot of the plaits or the braids mm-hmm. had seeds weaving into that. And that was for two reasons. One, for them always to have a part of home wherever they were because they were afraid they would be stolen or or whatever was going on, that they would always have some of home with them and they could put mm-hmm. the seed everywhere. And it was said during the times of slave ships that the seed was used to uh, actually was eaten as protein for a lot of the ones that did survive. But when you think about that and being able to tell mm-hmm. that story mm-hmm. and understanding the history of a lot of food, it makes you more humble than ever to talk about it. And right now here for us to tell the story of collaloo and some of the Jamaican pumpkins that we're growing. Oh, Hunter, I haven't told you about those. They're so huge and they're green mm-hmm. and they're beautiful and the taste is, is tremendous. Wow. The leaves are so big, it's almost like being in the jungle and they're called the guardians. Yes. Yes. They actually guard the, the plant, so nobody can really see them until it gets of age that is edible. So it's those great stories and that types of uh, food that we grow that we wanna continue to grow and tell the story about and be able to bring that interest uh, into new farmers, new, new farmers that we hadn't talked to yet that really wanna get into the agriculture world. And to me, that is one of the best things we can do for humanity, uh, that we can do to help to continue to help to feed the world and especially us here. So we're, we're always excited about that. And again, looking and partnering with other groups, or other organizations, but especially great chefs like you, Hunter, to uh, be able to enhance the food better. Thank you for allowing us to bring food to your restaurant so you can put food um, on the tables.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's amazing to think, you know, those seeds that people would hide them and hold on to those. And I mean, that's just inspiring and amazing. And what pushes me, you know, to make better food and interesting food at Elvie's every day.
3: Mm-hmm. We're also going to bring you some Lady's Fingers okra to, when we come tomorrow as well. And it's called Lady's Fingers. Okay. Again, it's a, a beautiful seed that we, we've we had, and it's one of the best tasting um, smooth okra. And it looks like a Lady's Fingers, thin and beautiful.
2: <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
1: Well, I want to I want to thank you both so much for joining me today, and I've really I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love that it was peppered with information about what uh, Doctor Ayers, you're going to be bringing Hunter at the restaurant uh, tomorrow. Uh, I wish I could be there yeah. to see and experience the food, but someday I will make it down to Jackson, and uh, we can all get together in person.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yes. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can read more about Footprint Farms at footprintfarmsms.com, and you can learn more about Hunter Evans and Elvies at elviesrestaurant.com. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out if you have any questions. You can reach me on email, harryatthebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week.